to part five of our study on the Shroud uh, and the evidence from the Shroud of Turin. So last time we addressed, started addressing uh, some of the Shroud's various what we call minimal relevant features. How this fulfills criterion A uh, of my main argument for you know identifying a G-belief authenticating event. So if you remember, we had those three criterion. Uh, first of all, the event actually took place or exists. Second, that that event is extraordinary. And then third, the third element, that it takes place within a context charged with religious significance. So we're looking at the first criterion. What, what are the features of the shroud, uh, the shroud's images? And uh, yeah, uh, so last time we covered the first five of those MRFs or minimal relevant features. This time we're going to be finishing off the final two minimal relevant features and all of their associated aspects. As well, there's um, quite a bit of counter features that need to be addressed this time is that uh, Shroud skeptics will bring up. So just bear in mind, this podcast may be a little bit longer I, I, than normal. I usually try to uh, put it somewhere in, in about the hour range there or thereabouts, but you know this might go a little bit over, uh, so we'll see how that goes. But in the first place, uh, just before we get into that, I do have a couple of announcements for you guys. Um, so just to give you a bit of a heads up, D- David has asked me to do some listener feedback episodes that you guys might, might uh, appreciate me doing that. Um, I wasn't uh, really planning on doing that, but uh, yeah, after thinking about it, I think it could be a good idea to, to work in some of the feedback that I've been getting at certain strategic locations in our study. Uh, so we're going to be doing that next time in part six. I'm going to spend some time going over some of the feedback, giving a, a response to some of the stuff I've been hearing from you guys. And just so we're not totally bypassing, uh, advancing or progressing in the Shroud study, I'm also going to devote some time during the episode just to giving sort of an introduction to Criterion B, my, you know, my methodology and how we're going to be evaluating the various image forming hypotheses as well. So, so that's the plan for part six. A second announcement to make, I have some very exciting news for you guys. Um, so I mentioned part four that I would speak with my friend, uh, Shroud expert Barry Schwartz. And He's actually agreed to come on and do an interview as a guest star in a future podcast for us. So, you know, I'm really excited about that. He's been very influential and helpful in my research on the Shroud. So, yeah, he's willing to come on. It's the 40th anniversary of STIRP, which took place in 1978 this year. Um, So, yeah, once his lecture tour ends in October, he's going to come on the show probably sometime November, December. And, uh, yeah, we'll have a, a good... An exciting show or interview with uh, the actual Shroud, ex- one of the Shroud experts that I've been talking about. So I think that's it for the announcements. Uh, so let's let's get straight into it then, back to our study. The first of the two final minimal relevant features, um, this is something I alluded to before, but it relates to the various anatomical or medical aspects about the, the Shroud Man and, and the bloodstain images. So that's our sixth MRF, uh, and it's you know it's things related to the condition of the shroud man's body or or aspects about the blood stain images there. So yeah, we'll get into it now. We're going to break it up into two major categories. So the the first are anatomical accuracies, and then the second category is going to be related specifically to the blood stain and and or body fluid you know uh, images on the shroud of Turin. Just so you know, there there are several aspects related to this. I I tried to fit in as much as I can. There's just so much uh, research that's gone onto the this feature specifically. Plus, there are multiple counter features that shroud skeptics bring up as as well. So yeah, I'm gonna try to cover as much as I can and break them up into 
categories for you guys to analyze. So the first is related to those anatomical accuracies, as I call them. And, you know, this, these are things like the various wounds or injuries uh, or otherwise physiological aspects about the Shroud Man. And study of these sorts of aspects really date back to the years just following Secondo Pia's discovery of the photographic negativity back in 1898. Various medical experts, uh, some of the world's leading scientists and medical, you know, medical experts at that time, were using Pia's negative photographs and began to study the Shroud Man from an anatomical or medical perspective. And this really dates back to uh, the year 1900 to 1902 with Paul Vinyan, who was a professor of biology in Paris, and Yves Delage. Again, he was a professor of comparative anatomy who was an agnostic, by the way. He was not a believing Christian. He was not biased. He was against the Christian side. Uh, however, though these two, along with three other scientists, studied the shroud images and proved that the shroud images are actually authentic represent a real human body. They're not artistic fakes. And they presented their findings in that regard in a full-scale report to the entire world's scientific community at the French Academy of Sciences uh, in the early 1900s there. Just to, to give you an idea, since since they started it, there's been a whole host of medical anatomists or forensic experts. I, you know, I mentioned Robert Buckland, for example. You know, they've subsequently studied the Shroud Man and made further discoveries. And all of them, everyone that's actually studied the, the shroud, you know, the actual cloth, for example, with the stirp, uh, they all conclude this is a real human being with real human blood based on the injuries. And, you know, I, I'm just to give you an idea of some of the, the caliber of people and the amount of medical experts that have studied this aspect, uh, you know, I'm looking right now at a list of about 24 such experts in total, just dating from the 20th century to the present alone. And every single one of these people, there are no exceptions, have all provided statements that in their medical expertise as authorities in their field, they all agree that the Shroud Man's images and wounds accurately reflect an adult human male who was well-proportioned and of average height and weight, who has appeared to have suffered from various wounds and also died due to crucifixion. All of these experts, these experts, uh, you know, con conclusively as a, as a sort of a, a a summarization of their findings, they all seem to be saying that the Shroud Man's injuries are is anatomically flawless perfection. And, I'll, you know, I'll give you an idea of some of the, the caliber of some of the people I'm talking about here. So I mentioned Paul Vinian and Yves Delage. There is also forensic pathologist Robert Buckland provided uh, his source in the, in the previous podcast. And we're, uh, I have some more sources from him today. Uh, there's Dr. John Heller. He was a STIRP scientist and professor of internal medicine and medical physics at Yale University. Dr. Bema Bologna. And uh, no, he's, he's despite his name, he's not full of bologna. But uh, <laughs> I, I know my, my sense of humor is not the best. But <laughs> anyways, um, so he was the chair of forensic medicine at the University of Turin. We have Dr. Francesco Lacava, a pathologist in uh, Naples, Italy. Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, uh, the chief of epidemiology. At, for the U.S. Uh, Army's headquarters. Uh, he was also a clinical instructor for Tufts Medical School. Uh, and finally, another one, uh, Dr. Frederick T. Zugaby, who is the chief medical examiner uh, of Rockland County in New York. These are just some of the names on this giant list of forensic and medical experts who all attest 
that the Shroud Man represents an anatomically accurate human being and was not an artistic fate. So just to give you a quick reminder, though, um, as part of our MRF approach, Despite the wording of, and despite what I've just said about these experts, I, I think it is a fact that it's real blood, and I think it is a fact that it had to involve a real human corpse. Whatever formed these images, a real human body with real human blood was involved. But I'm bending over backwards for the skeptic here. I'm not even going to assume this, because obviously if I do that, then most, if not all, artistic theories are just garbage right away. Well, it's it's not a painting then if it really has a real body. So I'm going to I'm not going to assume that. This this is the case. I'm going to bend over backwards, not assume that there was a real body or that it is real blood as part of our MRF approach. And as such, all of the aspects that I'm going to list, despite the wording of it, just remember, we're not assuming that it is uh, a real human body. Uh, let, let's pretend, you know, let's not assume maybe there could be some artistic way of depicting this or something until we get to the image forming analysis mechanism analysis in criterion B okay so what's the first anatomical accuracy here and uh, you know for for Darren if you're listening this this is really I, I mentioned you asked a question about well couldn't some artist know about the way to do historical historically accurate wounds on a person and part of my response was I well I'm gonna cheat and use some data from not only was it historically improbable for an artist to know how to depict these wounds it was also medically impossible for him to know and here's one of the things that I had in mind so there are various scourge and scratch marks that have been discovered on the shroud these these were discovered with the 1898 photo negative images taken by Secondopia and we've discovered about 100 to 130 dumbbell shaped scourge wounds on the Shroud Man. You can see this for yourself when you Google search that black and white image. But much of these, if not all of them, were previously invisible to the naked eye. No one saw, no one could see these, but they suddenly appeared in all their glory only with the modern camera technology. Why an artist would create some invisible wounds, I, goodness knows. But um, anyways, these scourge marks vary in intensity from light contusions to deep penetrating puncture wounds. And there are two lobes present on each of the marks. So it, it, it indicates that the there is some kind of bifid instrument that was used. And, uh, you know, based on the form and distribution of the marks, virtually all medical experts who have studied the shroud images in detail conclude that these wounds were inflicted by some sort of whip-like device. Ah... Jesus, he was whipped, he was scourged. That that fits, that uh, makes sense with what we have with the Gospels. And interestingly, the size and shape of the wounds on the Shroud Man match precisely uh, with those that would have been caused by the use of an ancient Roman flagrum. Not readily available equipment in the medieval ages. You know, it would have, would have been hard for some medieval artist to know how to accurately paint or depict or something. But yeah, that, that was the, the Roman whip-like device used to scourge criminals in the time of Jesus. And it was not really prevalent in later centuries of the em after the fall of the Roman Empire. One other thing, in addition uh, to many of the scourge marks, stirps actually... Uh, illuminated these uh, scourge marks using ultraviolet fluorescence lighting. And they actually showed extreme, invisible, extremely fine scratches that 
uh, like I said, were not visible with the naked eye. So, you know, sometimes there's about three or four of these parallel, very fine scratches that can be distinguished uh, in the areas of these dumbbell-shaped wounds. So, uh, and just so you know, these scratches are also present in other areas outside of the scourge wounds as well. You know, basically various chemical and spectral tests have confirmed, have also confirmed the presence of halos or what appear to be blood serum retraction rings. Again, invisible to the naked eye. You know, this alleged artist created invisible serum retraction rings, accurate to what real blood does. Uh, you know, ba- basically when you, when you bleed, your blood clots, and then it later retracts from the outer edges of the, of the wound, and it squeezes out uh, serum, which become these little clear liquid serum retraction rings. This is a process known as syner- synersis. And, um, you know, once again, the... So we're not going to assume this is actual serum retraction rings, even though it is. Yeah, we'll, we'll call them halos. Or if, if I say blood serum retraction rings, just, you know, pretend that's in quotes for our MRF purposes. But as to why an artist would paint invisible, clear uh, halos around the blood, the these scourge wounds and, and scratches that it that appears to simulate what a serum retraction ring was when it would have been medically impossible for him to even know about such things, I think you're completely ridiculous as a shroud skeptic at that point. Also, so just to give you an idea, variously combined with all the scourge wounds and all the minor cuts and scratches that STIRP scientists have discovered using UV fluorescence testing, the most accurate count of the wounds associated with the scourging is about 372 individual wounds. So there's 159 on the front and 213 on the back of the shroud man. Yeah, you, you just have to ask yourself, does, is the shroud skeptic really suggesting that some medieval artist purposely created invisible images that were medically and historically accurate and yet were completely invisible? You know, there's no reason for him to create such wounds because no one would be able to appreciate it. And as far as he would know, he, he wouldn't know about photographic negative camera technology. I mean, that didn't come around until the 19th century. So... I think this notion, this this anatomical aspect alone says the artist theory is impossible. This is really strong evidence. Okay, so next up we have the facial and head wounds. And so with this, so in the first place, the cheeks appear to be swollen and the right cheek contains a triangular shaped wound of some kind. Likewise, the nose is also swollen and bruised and it show, it indicates evidence that the cartilage might be separated from the bone. Uh, Some medical experts mention that. There's also several authentic-looking blood marks on the head, which run in differing directions, uh, you know, from their points of origin. So that suggests that the head was in differing positions as the blood flowed down from the from the head. Also unique to Jesus, circling the circling circling the top, front, and middle of the back of the head is a series of scalp wounds which give the impression that they were caused by the shroud man wearing some kind of cap of multiple sharp pointed objects uh, that you know pierced his scalp and caused these wounds. Oh, I seem to remember Jesus in the Gospels having a crown of thorns, something to that effect. Mm, not That's not a common uh, form of punishment that ancient Romans did. It certainly sounds like Jesus to me, uh, or at the very least, some art, some person is trying to make, 
make this shroud man look like Jesus. Basically, just to give you a, a bit of a quote here, the blood in the hair seems to register with the blood being transferred to the cloth, also from the sides of the face. So there are blood stains that correspond to the sides of the face, and that that's going to be relevant when we come to image forming mechanisms, because this indicates that the shroud, at least at some point, was wrapped around the face and or body before the occurrences of the blood imaging phenomenon. So uh, that's an important aspect to remember there as well, that there are blood stains that correspond to the sides of the face. Before we move on to the next aspect, we have to point out and be fair to the Shroud skeptic that there are two counter potential counter features related to the facial and head wounds that we have. Um, so the first one is that uh, this one's kind of iffy, but it, it's basically, they're saying that the Shroudman appears to have soft hair. Well, wait, wait a second. I thought you were saying this this guy, this Jesus, had been crucified and scourged. He, he would His hair would be soaked with blood and matted down, you know. It, it wouldn't appear soft and fluffy or something like that, like we would expect if there was a lot of blood or sweat and it was so... However, this observation is really subjective. It, it can't be established on a balance of probabilities. It, you know, you can look at it and make a subjective judgment. Well, it looks soft to me or something, but it's, it's, it is ambiguous. Shroud experts can't really agree. This is a controversial fact. So I don't think you can prove that the Shroud Man actually has soft hair on a balance of probabilities. Therefore, I, I don't think it's something I need to account for. However, let's pretend it's true. Is this a problem for pro-Shroud proponents that are, you know, proposing radiation or some kind of extraordinary mechanism? Well, no. Again, if we're proposing supernatural mechanisms, then anything's possible. I mean, rem remember, we, we were saying, well, what about the Shroud Man having white hair? Maybe it, at the time of the resurrection, the Shroud Man's hair was transformed white. Well, by the same token, it could have been transformed soft and, and dry as opposed to wet. So with this, this counter feature isn't a problem either way, but it can't be proven on a balance of probabilities. It is subjective judgment and can't be scientifically verified. And as such, it, it's not going to be considered. It's not going to be held against any theories. Now, the next one, this one is true. So the Shroud Skeptic says that there are various head wounds that are portrayed inaccurately over top of the hair. Well, that's not the way blood actually flows, man. It, it you know, it would soak through the hair as we we would expect. It wouldn't be in like little rivulets on top of the hair. So here's what the, the shroud experts, the stirp scientists, describe it this way. There are blood traces not consistent with scalp hair traces soaked with blood uh, in correspondence to the image of the hair on the front side of the shroud man's image. So here's where the shroud skeptics say, gotcha, uh, this obviously represents an artistic fake who'd you know, some ignorant medieval artist didn't have a dang clue what he was uh, doing, and he, he portrayed these wounds inaccurately. And I have to admit, this is an undeniable fact. It does count as an MRF and needs to be considered. However, contra to the skeptics, uh, I actually think this feature hurts the skeptic's case. It doesn't help you. It, it helps me as a pro-shroud person. This proves that a supernatural image mechanism must have been at play. Uh, or there, there are ways, for example, Mark Antonacci with Arthur Lind have come up with their historically consistent hypothesis. And he says not only did the body disappear, but the bloodstains disappeared. 
including from you know various areas that would wouldn't be covered by the shroud at the time the body images were formed and then these bloodstains reappeared onto the shroud um so again this is a miraculous explanation that could explain this data let's flip it around does it make sense that some medieval artist so he was brilliant. He, he portrayed light years, quantum leaps ahead of his medical experts at the time in the medieval period, paintings, invisible scratches, very fine, serum retraction rings, completely accurate blood flows, uh, so accurate it, it tricks 24 of the world's leading medical experts into thinking this is involving a real body. But somehow the obvious thing about painting bloodstains over top of the hair, which any Tom, Dick, or Harry would have known was obviously fake, I mean, they, they would have seen people getting killed with blows to the head all the time. They would know that blood soaks through. It doesn't come through in rivulets on top of the hair. But somehow he gets that wrong. So I, I don't think the Shroud skeptic can have it both ways here. Either the artist was some kind of medical genius depicting anatomical features that were impossible for him to know about, uh, or he was totally incompetent, portraying inaccurate wounds on top of the head or and messing up things like that. So, uh, yeah, I don't think you can have it both ways. It, it's got to be one or the other. Or, just a thought, maybe there was no artist to begin with and there's some other supernatural explanation as to why we have the evidence that we have. Um, so moving on to hand and arm wound. The left hand is placed over top of the right one, over, over top of the groin for, for modesty purposes. And on the left hand, we have a wound that appears to be coming out of the lower region or the wrist area. So we know this. there was a piercing there, and then there's a blood flow flowing down the arms from this wound. And these are comparable to transfers that would be expected if the arms were posed in non-horizontal positions or angles. And, you know, this, this suggests, it, oh, just like G, well, Jesus was crucified, seems to, to match up. This seems to be a crucifixion. There's a nail there piercing that area. Um, here, here's what some medical experts have described. This comes from Gil Lavoie. So the shroud shows that gravity affected the blood flow associated with the wound to the left wrist. The alignment of the blood flow relative to the direction of gravity has been used forensically to show that the arms were raised at an angle of approximately 20 degrees from the horizontal while the man was suspended on the cross in the death position and that the shoulders were likely dislocated. The reason this is important is because medieval artists always used to depict Jesus' crucifixion with him having nails through the center of the palms. And it wasn't until the 1930s that modern medical experiments with, you know, Pierre Barbette, for example, proved that this is anatomically impossible for a person to hold up his own body weight because the, the nail, based on just the weight of uh, the person, the the nail would tear through the flesh of the palm of the hands and he wouldn't be able to you know support himself on the, the cross so some shroud medical experts say that you know they've they've done some experiments I'll, I'll talk about that in the next next part but just to be fair to the shroud skeptic here there is some degree of speculation involved with this feature or aspect because actually we can't prove conclusively that the, sh the nail went through the wrist uh, some medical experts, pro-shroud proponents, have a bit of a dispute here because all we see is the back of the hand. We don't see where the nail, like the the inner part, right, uh, the forearm. 
we see the back of the hand. And from that, it looks like... It. So it could be that the nail went in through the lower part of the palm or the wrist. But it's definitely can rule out that it's not the center of the palm, which is what most medieval people thought... You know, that they thought that's how crucifixion worked. That's what they draw in their paintings and that sort of thing. But yeah, to be fair to the Shroud skeptic, we can't make the conclusive claim that it, we know the Shroud man's nail went through his wrist as opposed to maybe as opposed to through some point in the palm or something. And there is some dispute on that by the experts. Now, one one issue here. Here's the part where it gets a bit controversial. So I, I mentioned Dr. Pierre Barbet and he. He is one of those medical experts back in the 1930s. He, he, you know, he was an autopsy surgeon, and, and he really did a lot of research and experiments with cadavers over the course of really three decades to test scientifically you know, whether this problem would obtain or not, because some people say, well, if you're saying it goes through the wrist, then that's going to violate messianic prophecy because that, there are so many small bones in the wrist area that it it would probably break some of them. And as we know, the Messiah can't have any broken bones. So, you know, aha, says the Shroud Skeptic, we, we've got you guys, you, you messed up here. But um, Pierre Barbet did actual scientific medical experiments using real human bodies and crucified them. The result was a resounding answer, according to him, that this is not true. Because what happens is the nail will go through and it'll divert into the what's called the space of destot. So it, it actually pushes aside the four small bones. They're flexible in that way and in the wrist without breaking them and then goes into this space. Furthermore, when he pushed the nail in even further, he actually noticed another interesting feature that the thumb, because the nail will put pressure on and injure the median nerve in the wrists, and this will force the thumb to, to contract inward. Uh, you know, this was a medical fact that was previously unknown before the 20th century, but yet somehow, incredibly, this medieval artist on the Shroud Man's images has the thumbs not being able to be seen. He's just got the four fingers. The thumbs are retracted in, just like what Pierre Barbet medically proved would happen if uh, someone was crucified and the nail went through the wrists and, and impacted on the median nerve. So this is rather incredible there. Uh, this is pretty pretty interesting evidence, I would say. And just as a point of caveat, I'm going to include, because there are there is another medical expert more recent than Pierre Barbet, and he, he addresses this research and refutes it. Uh, his name is Dr. Frederick T. Zugaby. So I'm going to include his sources on this because there is some controversy about these findings. But again, both these experts agree, no, it's a real person that was crucified. So nothing that Zugaby says helps the Shroud skeptic in saying that the Shroud is some kind of artistic fake. They both say, no, it's conclusively proven that it's a real human body corpse that's involved here. There's just discrepancy on this you know, aspect about does it go through the wrists and was Pierre Barbet's research. Um, you know, Christian apologists still use Barbet's research, for example, with death by crucifixion. Well, how do you die? It's through asphyxiation. Well, it was Barbet that proved that back in the 1930s. You know, Zugaby says, well, no, I, I think it's more related to shock. And he tries to take Barbet to task saying, you know, his research is based on some faulty assumptions and stuff. So, yeah, look, look out for that. Um, I'm going to provide the sources to the counters there. But be aware that there are medical experts on both sides who take differing opinions on that issue. But all of them agree, no matter what, at the end of the day, is a real body. So that, that part stays. So I think at this point, we have to be fair to the Shroud skeptic because um, there are some 
various uh, counter features that come up basically in general. I, I call these the anatomical inaccuracies argument, and there, there are s- several that shroud skeptics try to point out and we need to address. So in the words of STIRP scientists who readily admit this, so they say this, although the anatomical details are generally in close agreement with standard human-to-body measurements, some of the measurements made on the shroud man's image, such as with the hands, calves, and torso, do not agree with anthropological standards. You know, also additionally on the inner side, the frontal shroud man's upper left leg, which it is, is um, it's sort of upraised and it's it's barely encoded. It, it looks a lot thinner compared to the right man's thigh, thigh, the right the shroud man's right thigh, uh, which is a lot more thicker. So, you know, this is sort of an odd thing. Think think of a medieval art, an artist. Why would they paint the thighs like that? That doesn't make any sense. There, there must be some other explanation going on for that. But but anyways, with regards to these anatomical inaccuracies in general, well, well what happened, Dale? I thought you said these medical experts, you know, they all agreed it, the Shroud Man was anatomically flawless. Now, now all of a sudden you're admitting that we have proof that it's not flawless. Uh, there are some inaccuracies Uh, that have been quantified and discovered on the Shroud Man. Well, I guess that means the Shroud skeptics can now, you know, turn off their brains again and wrap themselves up in their, their, you know, their little blankies of self-assurance that the Shroud is a medieval fake. Yes, we we win. We we did it. It's it's an anatomically ignorant artist that's responsible for these images. Well, not so fast there, Mr. Skeptic. Uh, I think there are a few things that you need to know. In the first place... Skeptics seem to forget, don't forget, the amazing accurate anatomical accuracies which are impossible for an artist to paint and which are in close agreement with standard human body measurements. As to how you get that mix with some kind of medieval artist, I don't believe you. I'm sorry. That just seems ridiculous to me. So there must be some other explanation as to why these why there are some inaccuracies as shown on the shroud, even though a real human body is still still being used. You know, as I said, forensic calculations and experimental draping from volunteer subjects in a model of the shroud cloth do indicate that the man had a height of approximately five foot nine inches, uh, or five foot ten when you don't factor in stretching of the cloth and that sort of thing was 170 pounds. And this body is anatomically well developed and normal, but with regards to these minor accuracies, these are all readily explainable because, um, you know, there are things like motion blurs that could have uh, taken place, uh, or there's also tent effects, uh, like a camping tent. And these are caused by things like the upraised left leg, causing the shroud to become sort of like a tent, or the hands covering the groin uh, would also create you know, various distortions on the body images encoded on the shroud, you know, they would sort of be enhanced by the draped cloth uh, collapsing if a cloth collapse hypothesis were true uh, because once the body disappears, it creates sort of a vacuum and the cloth sort of flattens out a little bit, flattens out a little bit, creating different wrapping configurations. Also, with regards to the fingers, this this is another one I didn't mention, but they seem to be unnaturally elongated. They're, they're longer than normal. Various, uh, Mark Antonacci again, he can readily account for this, this feature as well. So basically, it's due to the fact that the fingers on the Shroud Man are curved. They're slightly curved 
inwards. And, you know, when the body images are being coated on the cloth, once the cloth was then straightened, it, it makes the fingers appear to be longer than they would on a normal human being. And this is something that's readily explainable. I mean, you, you can confirm it for yourself. The, the, uh, it's, it's easily observed by anyone using measuring tape to measure from your wrist to the tips of your fingers, both while curved and then while held straight out. The first measurement will always be longer than the latter. So this is, this is just readily explainable. It's not a problem at all uh, in postulating that there was a real body involved. Again, but on the other hand, just imagine this medieval artist getting s impossible details correct, but messing up, screwing up on these, these obvious errors by painting fingers longer than they should be, or you know, thin left thigh versus a thicker right thigh. Like the, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't believe the shroud skeptic that it's not plausible to me that he would mess up such obvious details that anyone would have known better about. Okay, uh, so. There, there are also various shoulder and knee abrasions, uh, but this is not going to be included. This is a type C fact, um, so just be aware of it because it is mentioned in the literature, but it, it's it's not a confirmed fact, so it's not going to be a part of an MRF in our in our analysis. We also have leg and foot wounds, piercing wounds uh, or holes in the metatarsal regions of the shroud man's feet. Such a wound is consistent with a nail being driven through the feet during crucifixion. As I said, additionally, the left leg of the shroud man appears upraised and bent so that the left foot looks as though it was placed on top of the right one. This is a standard position for crucifixion victim being nailed to a cross. Interestingly, there's no evidence that the legs of the victim were broken. Remember that Old Testament messianic prophecy the Shroud skeptics wanted to use with regards to the wrist? Well, that comes into play here. It's, it's interesting that the Shroud man displays no obvious evidence that uh, proves the legs were broken or that any of the bones were broken. And in terms of the nail through the cross, we made that discovery of Johannin that I said back in 1968. He, he still had the nail from his crucifixion. Uh, in his ankles. Now with this evidence, it is important to note that there are differences between uh, the position that the Johannin, the archeological evidence was nailed through, he, his feet were sort of on a, on a side angle and he was done through the ankles, whereas the shroud man's is more through the top, more through the, you know, the metatarsal regions of the feet. So there is a difference there. Uh, but I'll be including a, you know, a 106 page source about specifically on the topic about the nails through the feet and, and whether that makes sense uh, for crucifixion and that sort of thing. So you'll, you'll be able to check into that. But just be aware, all the experts agree it is, it is a plausible position for ancient Romans to crucify through the metatarsal regions. of. Okay, uh, now interestingly, the chest wound. There's, this is the densest and largest blood flow or blood stain um, injury that's on the shroud man. And all medical and pathological experts agree that the blood depicted here resulted from what they say is a post-mortem blood flow. They can tell the difference between pre- and post-mortem blood flows. This artist is incredible. How does he know the difference, you know? But anyways, it, it was caused by piercing the right side of the body between the fifth and sixth ribs and into the thoracic cavity. So the wound itself resembles the size and shape of the ancient Roman lancia. It just happens to match up. Uh, this medieval artist really got around and saw ancient weapons and how they how he should depict them. But this is really just sort of a spear with a leaf-shaped blade that has since been discovered by modern archaeologists. Now it's important here because the bloodstain corresponding to the to the right man 
right uh, side of the shroud man's hair, it shows a separation of blood from a clear liquid material. That's the, the quote from the experts. Now, this is just consistent with what the Gospel of John says about when Jesus was stabbed or pierced with the lancia, the right oracle of his heart uh, would have filled with blood and a massive plural effusion of pericardial fluid, that's the clear liquid, uh, from the area of the heart would flow out along with the blood uh, as a result of this this um, of the traumas that he'd been through. Yeah, th- this is exactly what we find with the Shroud Man and what we'd expect from if it belonged to Jesus. The blood would flow out along with the watery fluid from from the pleural cavity there. So, you know, to to think that some medieval forger could have known that postmortem blood and watery fluid would would have flowed out from the right side because remember this is the opposite the heart is on the left side why is it, this medieval artist is deliberately putting this wound on the right side of the shroud man as seen with the naked eye just so that when people have modern camera technology and take a photo image it lines up precisely with where it should be on the left side in the true photo positive image. This medieval artist was a genius that these shroud skeptics like to pretend they believe in and that sort of thing. This is just impossible, I'm sorry to say. There was no artist. It involves a real human body. Okay, um, now in terms of other anatomical aspects, so it was also discovered by Sterp that there, on the inner side of the cloth there are no signs of decomposition or putrefaction liquids of any type absolutely nothing so if this if this uh shroud man did have a real body it didn't decay to the point where there is a buildup of decomposition or putrefaction liquids which left any residue on the shroud it's it there's nothing there likewise we we also can tell from the the body displays certain features of rigidity uh like on the buttocks for example It's, it's not flattened, totally flattened the way we would expect if you just lie down on a stone slab. This indicates that if it is a real body, that it was still in the uh, rigor mortis phase. And as we know, it, you know, rigor mortis, depending on environmental conditions, will last no more than about three to five days. So somehow the images were formed on the shroud if, if it involves a real human body, as I, I think you have to admit it does. But you know, we're not going to assume that in our MRF approach, but if I've convinced you so far that it, if there was a body, that body created images, it left created images in the rigor mortis phase and left the shroud before any signs of decomposition or putrefaction liquids could build up or accumulate on the shroud cloth, suggesting that this process took place within about three to five days. Who does that sound like? Oh, Jesus, rose on the third day. Hmm. Interesting. However, with the rigor mortis thing, again, this this is not going to be an MRF because it is a class two fact. It, it assumes that there was a real body. So the, the MRF will just be that the shroud man is in a appears in a rigid state. So that, that could apply to a statue as well, you know. But just be aware, if it is a real body, which I think the other evidence should force you to believe, well then that means it's in rigor mortis giving a time frame of when the shroud images had to have been formed, which just precisely align with um, what the Gospels say about Jesus rising on the third day. Um, Okay, so 
Our last anatomical aspect, and again, this is a controversial one. I don't use it. I, I'm not sure about it. I'm skeptical of it myself, and it's, so it's not going to be an MRF. But I need to mention it because this is the main argument. It is used by pro shroud experts like Gary Habermas, for example, uh, in arguing the shroud. And if true, this would prove that radiate a supernatural radiation event from the body is the only explanation. If this aspect is the is ever confirmed to be true it's game over skeptics take your cards and go home we win and this is the fact that there are various bones teeth and parts of the skull that have been you know bones in the in the wrist area for example and and other areas have been claimed to have been uh to exist on the shroud well obviously that those inner parts of the body, only if radiation emits out of the body could such features be present on the shroud cloth. Yeah, like like I said, uh, I've seen pictures, I've, Bear Schwartz sent me pers- like close-up pictures of the facial region, and I have to confess, I do, I think I do see what they're talking about with regards to the teeth, at least. Uh, I'm not sure about the other stuff, but with the teeth, I can kind of see what they're talking about. So uh, they're not making stuff up, but there are various issues that make me skeptical of it. It, it. it corresponds with, I think it's the weft of the cloth or something like that. Barry Schwartz doesn't agree with this. He thinks it's all pattern recognition. And I, I tend to think it's at least an equal possibility that he could be right, that we're just seeing patterns. Uh, maybe I'm tricking myself when I think I see these teeth in the shroud man's mouth you know it's kind of like looking up to a cloud and oh it looks like a lion or something like that so this isn't an mrf this is a type c fact in those list sources i provided you in part four but just be aware pro shroud proponents do use this as an evidence to argue their case and if it's ever if it's true or ever confirmed to be true my goodness it's game over mr skeptic you lose uh right away in my opinion so i'll provide some sources about the bones and teeth so you guys can look it up for yourself but i myself am skeptical and don't use this okay so now it's time for some more counter features of the shroud skeptic um before we move on to the the category of the blood stains so I told you, I told you guys there's quite a lot <laughs> uh, to go over in this this podcast. So I'll, I'll try to be as quick as I can. So basically, uh, some of these c- counter features, I, I've already covered historical inaccuracy counter features in uh, part three of our study in the in the part three podcast. You know, I've, I've covered the art history and coin arguments in part two. So we're going to bypass that. That's already been covered. Uh, however, there are uh, th- various theological or biblical counter features or objections that, that, believe it or not, Christians raise. It, it's not always the Richard Dawkins types and, you know, that are the shroud skeptics actually some of the most staunchest critics of the shroud are christians believe it or not so here's i'm getting this from an article i I provided in the sources these are the the five arguments christians use against the shroud by barry schwartz um so the first one is that the shroud is a graven image therefore anyone who believes in it is committing the sin of idolatry you know this this gets into a technical definition of what it means to worship you know, Dulia versus I think Latria is the the terminology. Like someone like James White, for example, he would be no, you're you're worshiping the shroud. But I, I just think this is ridiculous. It, in the first place, it's not a man-made object. If if it's truly miraculous and was created by Jesus' resurrection, 
Um, so it's not idolatry in the technical sense, but it, no, no one, no Catholic is worshiping the shroud images. It's, it's not. It's just a sort of focal point or an evidence that people are using. I mean, no one worships the Red Sea, even though that was privy to a miracle by Moses or with the Bible. You know, are, are we worshiping the Bible because we believe that's God's miraculous, miraculously inspired word or something? No, I, th- I think that people like James White are going too far. They're being too strict with what it, what they think worship would entail. So there's nothing about the shroud that means we're worshiping that object just because it's miraculous. Also, here, here's one that I myself used to have. This is just a Catholic relic. Like I said, I I, before I knew anything about the Shroud, this is one that I have to uh, ashamedly confess that I thought about it. Whenever, when someone mentioned the Shroud, uh, it's Catholic garbage, it, it, it's not real. That was before I learned that Gary Habermas took the evidence from the Shroud seriously. Uh, being a conservative Baptist Christian scholar, this really amazed me, and it was what compelled me to say, okay, I, I'm going to look into this thing a little bit more. However, as, as to addressing the objection, there's nothing Catholic, there's nothing inherently Catholic about the shroud images. Sure, it was owned by Catholics historically, but that's not enough to prove that, you know, it's just another Catholic relic. That That's guilt by association. That's a logical fallacy. And there's nothing about the shroud images that specifically attest to Catholicism versus, you know, a a Protestant denomination or the Eastern Orthodox. So I think the shroud images attest to biblical Christianity, the biblical Jesus, and therefore falls under the category of Christianity proper. You know, nothing more, nothing less. The, The evidence from the shroud can be used by a Protestant, can be used by a Catholic or an Eastern Orthodox. There's nothing inherent to one denomination or something like that based on the shroud. In the same way, the historical evidence for the resurrection can be said to belong to Catholic, can be used by Catholics, Protestants, or Eastern Orthodox. Okay, here, here's one we covered in the historical objections, but it, remember the law, Jesus has long hair, and the, the skeptics sort of ignorant of, of the actual archaeologist and what the ancient historians say, say, well, that's totally unhistorical. But there is also a biblical point here, and they they say that long hair was forbidden for Jews. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14 The Apostle Paul says, doesn't even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a shame unto him? Well, I guess the shroud man has long hair. That can't be Jesus then. But bear in mind that this verse was written 20 years later to Greeks, not to Jews, uh, living in Corinth. And it was a completely different context. I don't think this was some kind of universal rule, but it was more a cultural specific. You know, Paul's letters are occasional letters. They're written for certain aspects, uh, for certain reasons. In the second place, the Bible does allow for long hair. Remember Samson? Uh, what about the Nazarites and the Nazaretic vow, Nazarite vows? Uh, you know, just, just take a little look at Numbers chapter 6 verse 5 or Leviticus chapter 19 verse 27, and you'll see the shroud skeptic is basically totally out to lunch in this case. Um, he's just wrong. Uh, it, you know, period. Okay, another one is that, well, the Old Testament Messianic prophecies say that the Messiah's beard should be plucked out entirely. But the Shroud Man, he has a full beard, right? So I guess this violates Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6, where it says, uh, you know, they, they plucked the hair off from his cheeks. However, it doesn't say they took off all of his facial hair. It just says they plucked off his hair. So yes, someone can grab your beard and some of it will come out. It doesn't even need to be a full chunk of it. But remember, maybe perhaps the V-shaped notch, maybe that indicates some of the hair was 
plucked out and a big chunk was taken out. Or if you believe Gary Habermas and, you know, those are just strands poking out. It, it could be just that some some people can pull out hair from beard, but it doesn't make any noticeable gap in the beard. Uh, so there's nothing about the fact that the Shroud Man has a beard that disproves this Old Testament verse is being fulfilled. Okay, and here's the final theological objection. This one is the best one, in my opinion, but... It's the fact that, well, the Gospels or the New Testament don't mention anything about Shroud Man images. You know, it talks about the burial cloths, but there's nothing in there about miraculous images of Jesus. You know, Christians are perplexed. Why Why is this the case? Why, why would they not mention such remarkable images? Why wouldn't they start venerating the, this burial shroud just like Catholics venerate the Shroud of Turin today? Well, the answer is... Uh, Remarkably simple, actually. So the reason there's no record of early Christians mentioning or, or venerating images is because there weren't any shroud images in the first place. What? What, what are you talking about here, Dale? Um, you know, I, I know it might sound like I've maybe had one too many at this point, but trust me, I, I know what I'm saying here. So under certain uh, supernatural resurrection theories, let, let's pretend this is the case for a second. If the body images were formed by a supernatural resurrection whereby radiation like a neutron flux or neutron and protons radiation were used to create them create the images of degraded cellulose then it could take years decades or even possibly up to centuries for the images to form you know think think about how a newspaper will gradually turn yellow when left in the sun remember sun ultraviolet radiation that that's john jackson's theory of how the shroud images were formed, for example, you know, it, it's a gradual process and it could take time for the images to darken to the point that we can see them like we do today. Uh, and, you know, Mark Antinici, he also mentions this gradual process of the images becoming visible. So this explains why they're not mentioned, because there were no shroud images that were visible at immediately after the resurrection. Okay, so let's move on to our second category, and this is the category of the bloodstains. Once again, there's a heck of a lot to present here for you guys. Uh, I've done my best to include as much as I can. In the podcast, again, I'll, I'll provide some sources, as well as I'll, I'll be attaching my own tables from my Shroud chapter, where I list out all the minimal relevant features for you guys, and another table listing out all of the various anatomical aspects and all of the aspects under the bloodstains as well that I use, uh, along with the counter features. So you'll have that e you'll have that for ease of reference if david can attach that to the wordpress somehow you know with the blood stains uh, in the first place as i alluded to with the scourge marks before there are multiple blood flows and body fluid stains uh, present on the shroud um, some of these blood flows indicate differing angles or or directions of the the body position uh, so it's not that the body was in one single position when these various blood flows were, were being encoded on the cloth or taken in on the cloth. You know, there are discerned differences between pre-mortem and post-mortem blood flows that can be discerned by medical experts. Here, here's a quote from uh, Pierre Brebet, uh, from, from some of these shred experts, sorry. Um, the blood flows are in the exact shape and appearance of actual blood as it forms, flows and congeals on human skin and you know the, these blood stains have very clearly defined borders and this is unlike the body image remember the body images are diffuse they have they're uncircumscribed they don't have a border and that 
that's why they disappear within close range. The, the bloodstains, by contrast, have very clearly marked, definable borders or edges to them. Now, just before we start getting into more MRFs on the bloodstains, um, remember, I, I don't want to presume that the bloodstains are actually blood, even though, again, it, it's proven true. The Shroud skeptic doesn't know what he's talking about if he thinks this is paint. Um, but I'm going to get into that into criterion B of discussing and debating whether it's, you know, what the evidence is against the fact that the bloodstains are paint. Because there is scientific evidence by Walter McCrone, who's a part of STIRP, suggesting that the bloodstains could be composed of paint. And that is scientific evidence that needs to be taken seriously and addressed. Um, but we're going to leave that for another podcast. But just to give you a brief summary on the other end, like how, what is it that causes STIRP science? What are some of the st- uh, findings that cause STIRP scientists to say, no, this is actual blood? Remember, this isn't an, MR- an MRF, but it's important for you to know because I think it's conclusive. There's no doubt this is blood. Um, I could use this as an MRF if I wanted to, to rule out many artistic theories. But I'm, again, I'm going to bend over backward and say I, I don't even need to assume that. I can still defeat the Shroud Scap. And just before we get uh, with regards to the angles of the blood stains, I, I mentioned that it's been proven that some of the blood flows are uh, not consistent with a, a body lying in the supine or horizontal body position. Um, you know, there have been various measured angles for some of the blood stains in different positions, including ones that would be expected if the arms were posed in a non-horizontal position, just like on a cross. Now, Dr. Gilbert Lavoie, one of the medical experts who studied the shroud evidence, he's gone even further in this regard because he's he's argued through various scientific experiments that the angles of these flows are actually consistent with the body being in a vertical position, such as one would be when they're crucified specifically. He's argued from this that we can prove the Shroud Man's arms were in a crucifixion position. Now, that's going a little bit too far. That's a type C fact, but be aware that that is in the literature. Um, But the solid MRF fact is that we know the body was in non-horizontal positions and that the arms were in, you know, non-horizontal positions when the blood was flowing from the wounds. Right. So to get back into, okay, what are some of the, just to list off some of the evidences that prove the Shroud's bloodstains are blood. Again, this isn't a part of our MRFs, but let's, let's just see what's out there. So, you know, for some of you Shroud skeptics that are just accustomed to saying, oh, it's been proven to be paint. You might want to buckle up because this is going to be a bit of a bumpy ride for you guys. It's going to be sort of a rude awakening for you. So in 1980, STIRP team members, biophysicist John Heller and blood expert, the world's expert in this area, blood chemist Alan Adler, collaborated in publishing the report based on various chemical testing. They had, and we're going to get into this when I combat Walter McCrony's findings in, in part two. I'm going to contrast his findings with the STIRP scientists here in more detail. But basically, they, they proved beyond all reasonable doubt scientifically that blood was actual, the blood on the shroud was actual blood. Now, the original tests back then were not able to classify the blood as human uh, because the chemical tests back then couldn't really distinguish, you know, the blood between different animal species. Now, that was supplemented in 1981. Again, Heller and Adler extended their research on the shroud blood samples that they received from STIRP, uh, and they included seriological techniques. So that, you know, that involves uh, diagnostic identification of two major blood serum proteins, albumin and immoglobin. 
uh, which is an immunoglobin, so that's the antibody there. These were identified and proven to be present in the shroud. And that, using that research, they were able to further classify the blood in the shroud as primate blood. Now, in 1985, the Italian professor, remember Dr. Bema Bologna, who, who was an expert pathologist, he, he again used seriological techniques to confirm Heller and Adler's identification of the immunoglobin globulin in the shroud blood. And he evaluated the expression of additional blood components as well. So specifically, he identified the antigens identified as M, N, and S. You know, that that research showed the blood stains on the shroud were M, N, and S positive. This is unlike M and N antigens that are shared between certain primates and primates and humans. Uh, so the the S antigen there is exclusive to humans only. Thus, from that we were able to conclude it's human blood. It's a positive result that or evidence that indicates the presence of human blood specific. Further studies as well by by Dr. Kurse, for example, um, some of his articles are going to be provided in the recommended to that. Uh, mention some of the various forensic as well as uh, seriological testing that proves the presence of human blood on the shroud. So, yeah, it, it's, I'm sorry, it's it's undeniable shroud skeptic. It is real blood, whether you like it or not. So, yeah, you, that's something you'll have to deal with. Okay, so again, what are, what are RFs, though, associated with the blood stains? Because we're not assuming it is real blood for our purposes. And uh, I'm going to try to list these off quickly because I see we're already above an hour here. So, okay, so in the first place, we know that the blood clots were transposed to the linen during what's called fibrinolysis. So that, um, that's a process where um, the clots are liquefied. So they're sufficiently liquefied or, or in a liquid state so that they transfer to the cloth, you know, as a serous-laden liquid uh, or possibly as a moist, jelly-like, you know, semi-coagulated state. Dried blood stains don't transfer to cloth so that we know that they were not dried. They were watery in nature. They were wet uh, or at least semi, semi-wet or semi-coagulated. Also, all the blood stains transferred completely. There are no interruptions or discontinuities with them. Uh, they appear in the exact size, shape, and appearance as they would had they flowed and congealed on human skin. That's how the experts put it. Also, the blood stains have saturated to the point that they've become embedded into the cloth. So remember, the body images are superficial. Well, the blood stains are the exact opposite. They soak right through and show up on the backside of the cloth, um, albeit a little bit fainter, but in the same size and shape as they correspond on the inner side. Blood stains show, obvious, obviously, as a liquid, they show evidence of cementation or capillary flow, uh, unlike the body image. Um, the blood stains also have darker perimeters versus a faint center. So the, the outside rim of the blood stains are darker in color, they're darker red. Than the than the centers of the blood. This is a sort of a, a new aspect, and it, it hasn't been as rigorously confirmed yet. I'm still gonna I'm still gonna mention this as an MRF, but uh, I'll be sort of iffy about using it uh, against natural hypotheses as much. But um, I'm, I'm still gonna mention it because it is it is a fact of, of some blood stains, but it hasn't been an aspect that STIRP has rigorously tested and confirmed for yet, but it does seem to be scientifically verified. So also the shroud, the bloodstains are photographic positive images, unlike the body images. 
uh, and they have a different mineral composition to some of the suggested paints that have been suggested by Macroni, as we'll see, for composing the bloodstains. There are also various off-image as well as on-image bloodstains. So not all of the bloodstains correspond to stains on the Shroud Man. There, there are images that we know are that are off-image. That's kind of weird for a medieval artist to paint. Why would he do that? You know, there's no context as to where they came from, but scientists uh, have now been, stirp scientists have been able to prove that while these off-image bloodstains fit exactly the expected configuration of a body-shaped object being wrapped in a shroud, the shroud image being flattened out, and then the shroud being flattened or straightened out, uh, making it appear that these images are, these bloodstains are just off-image. They have no context of being part of a body. As I said, as I said with the scourge wounds, same with the blood marks, UV fluorescence spectral testing has proven that the blood stains have at least what appear to be serum retraction rings uh, or halos, if you want an MRF, which are associated with them and which are invisible to the naked eye. Next, here, here's an important one. There are no encoded body images underneath the bloodstain. So here's here's a quote from the experts. Experiments were performed employing various enzymatic removal of the blood from blood-coated fiber samples. We're going to get more details on that in uh, part criterion B on the painting hypothesis. But these experiments revealed that there is no image body beneath the blood or the blood serum uh, at the boundary of the tested bloodstains. The image color was found to precisely terminate consistently at the boundary of the blood stains and or serum retraction ring. Now that uh, that's impossible for a medieval artist. We'll, we'll talk about that later, but it there's no overlap as we'll find out. There, there's no the body images terminate precisely where the blood stains are. So this this implies that the blood stains got encoded onto the shroud first. And somehow, whatever mechanism created the body images, it was interfered with or hindered by the presence of the blood stains, resulting in no body images being formed in those locations. Also, note that there are no there is no evidence of any major smearing, denaturing by heat or, or charring, thermal degradation. Or there's no damage, and or otherwise, there's no alteration or uh, to the blood stains or to their associated invisible serum retraction rings or halos. Um, they're in pristine condition. Um, there's also various blood non-contact zones. There's some blood stains that are encoded on the shroud but would not likely have been in contact at least with a naturally draped cloth, you know, unless someone wants to postulate some sort, sort of external pressure. Uh, being applied or, or somehow the cloth was forced to conform artificially to the body so that these areas would be touching. Um, but again, that that would cause some issues with the nature that the, the bloodstains are in the exact shape, right? You, If you put a bandage on a bloody wound, it creates a big smeared blob. So that those two items could conflict at some point. But um, yeah, just to give an example of some of these non-contact zones. So, for example, there are about 20 different blood marks that have been identified across the back of the man's head. Well, a round surface means that not all of these points would make contact with a hard limestone floor or, or a cloth that's spread upon it. Also, the the shoulder blades, the, the top parts of the shoulders, 
as well as much of the lower back, right? If you lie down, the small the small of your back will be curved up. It won't be touching or flat on the surface. Therefore, there will be gap, a gap between the shroud lying underneath and, and the small of your back. But yet, we have blood stains and scourge wounds from those areas encoded somehow under the shroud. So, so yeah, there are various locations based on the position of the shroud man that we know would be unlikely to be to have been in contact and therefore this creates some problems for how these blood stains and and scourge wounds would have been encoded onto the shroud in pristine condition okay um so just a couple extra blood stain features again uh these ones are not mrfs but I, i'm trying to be as thorough as i can and, and mentioning as much as i can just so when you encounter it, you're, you're aware of it. So there's also the fact that most shroud experts, as I said, believe that the blood was deposited first onto the shroud and then the body images were created and the blood interfered with that process. That's not an MRF, that part though. It, it might be possible to say that the blood somehow got on afterwards, although it, it appears really strained. But yeah, so recognize that I think it's true and that most shroud experts make the obvious conclusion, let's say, that the blood was on the shroud first, and then whatever caused the body images to form, the blood stains interfered with that process and prevented body images from forming underneath them or from forming in those locations. Now, one last thing, and this is an interesting one. I'm going to provide an article here. Um, this is not an MRF, but some of the blood marks in the forearm region, for example, ha have been mysteriously encoded in exactly the same way as the body images. So it's almost like some of the blood stains as body images. So, you know, they're composed of degraded cellulose or, you know, the, the same way the body images are. And that that's an interesting finding that John Jackson argues for in his article, you know, he, where he analyzes four possible theories that can potentially account for them. And here, here's what he says. So he, he says, quote unquote, it, it seems that blood clots generated images of themselves in some cases, just as the skin and hair did, where the cloth slash clot contact was very doubtful. So that that's an interesting one. I'm going to provide that article for you to decide for yourself. I, I won't be including that as an MRF. That That's a weird, a weird uh, f thing that uh, Shroud researchers have discovered uh, that you can read about and decide for yourself. So all in all, I, I think that after everything with the blood stains and all the anatomical aspects that we've studied is said and done. The notion that an art medieval artist created all of these features, including ones that are impossible. I don't use that word lightly, but I'm going to quote Pierre Barbet, again, the, the chief autopsy surgeon and professor of anatomy at St. Joseph's Hospital in Paris, France. Uh, when he was asked about the possibility of a medieval forger creating the Shroud Man's images, he said, quote unquote, Never would he have succeeded in producing these stains with clearly marked edges, uh, which with such outstanding truthfulness reproduce the shape of the clots as they were formed naturally on the skin. I'm sorry, the, the shroud skeptic is just wrong. It's impossible. I think that there's a 0% chance that some medieval artist created all of the various features of the blood and anatomical aspects that we have with the shroud. Zero percent. I'm quite firm on that. There's nothing a shroud skeptic can say in response to that. Okay, so just before uh, again moving moving on, there are some counter features about the blood stains which I have to address, and there's a total of three. So the first one we're not going to address. As I said, I'm saving that for discussion on the painting hypothesis in Criterion B. But these are the various pro paint observations that 
Walter McCronies uh, was involved with STIRP, said he was able to scientifically prove, and he does present evidence that has to be admitted, that support the conclusion that the blood stains are composed of paint as opposed to real blood. That that needs to be tackled, but we're going to delay that. So this a second one is well, the blood stains are red. You know, there's this enduring redness. Actually, they're not red. They're more a deep red or a, a carmine color. But still, no, no. What when if it was real blood, it should be brown or black. If it's centuries old, even if it's medieval, it should be black by now. It shouldn't still be this red color, this red color, right? And believe it or not, this was actually the one counter feature that prevented uh, my friend and, and the shroud expert Barry Schwartz from believing the shroud was authentic. It, it took him 17 years until the mid 1990s before he realized that actually no, the shroud is authentic, and this is this was the sole factor that was preventing him from from concluding this. So how can pro-shroud people respond to the, the fact that the shroud is red? It, it, the bloodstains are red. This is an undeniable fact. It can't be dismissed. Uh, well, firstly, supernatural theories involving radiation, like Mark Antonacci's uh, neutron or proton flux, this perfectly explains why the bloodstains uh, are still red. Um, Obviously, this is a supernatural explanation. So that this wasn't what convinced Barry Schwartz. Uh, he he doesn't believe the shroud's images are formed by radiation or supernatural. We have a perfectly normal natural explanation. This was proven by the again Jewish uh, blood expert, Dr. Alan Adler, and he basically said that well, it's it's obvious that this shroud man had been tortured. He wasn't given any water for an extended period of time, and we can assume he would have been in what's called hypovolemic shock. So if that were the case, then this means that the liver would begin to manufacture a chemical known as bilirubin, and that bilirubin is then released into the bloodstream. Well, um, with with this chemical known as bilirubin, this is a hemolytic agent, and it basically breaks down the walls of the red blood cells in your blood, you know, and that obviously releases what's called hemoglobin. So with that, that will allow blood to stay red forever. Bada boom, bada bing. We, we've got our explanation as to why the shroud images are red. Sorry, shroud skeptics, you're all, you've uh, failed again in your attempts to show that this is an artistic fake. But yeah, this is a... The fact that the Shroud's blood scenes are red is an obvious fact. It's an undeniable potential counterfeiture that's irrelevant because it can be explained. It doesn't prove there wasn't a body. Now, here's one I'm excited to present because it's one I didn't know about until one of my fans, one of the listeners here, Darren Lute, provided a link. It's, It's basically there was a new scientific test based on blood pattern analysis, or BPA, um, tests which are alleged to have proven the shroud's blood stains are unrealistic. Or sorry, at least some of the blood stains on the shroud are unrealistic. And um, as I said, this this is relatively new. So um, I'm providing uh, links to both the article, the news article that the uh, listener provided in the comments section, as well as the scholarly journal, peer-reviewed journal article from the Journal of Forensic Sciences. So this is good. This is scientific experimental evidence that can't just be dismissed, uh, whether you like it or not. And I've also provided sources countering that from a pro-shroud proponent, Mark Antionacci, you know, addressing this new study and, and the problems with it. So, but yeah, I just wanted to mention this is a new counter feature that needs to be brought up. And he basically did two different experiments showing that the blood stain flowing down the arms were unrealistic 
given a crucifixion position or a vertical position. And also the chest wound is unrealistic because it should flow down in streams. It wouldn't pool up like a you know a fully filled bloodstain like what we have with the shroud. Uh, Luigi Garlachelle scientists conducted a series of te- various tests through this blood pattern analysis um, on a on a mannequin and through the through the forearm of a volunteer. They discovered that there are various blood rivulets that don't line up with the theory that the arms are nailed at a 45-degree angle. They assumed that this 45-degree angle is there, and also from the chest wound, uh, they conclude that it wouldn't be able to pool, uh, show up as a pool. And also there's what's this called, this blood belt across the lower part of the shroud man's back. And they say, based on their experiments, well, that wouldn't happen. The blood wouldn't go and curve around and create this sort of belt around the back, man's back. Okay, so in terms of what we can say, so first of all, looking at the hand and arm blood flows, the first thing to point out here is that they use a heavily an- a heavy anticoagulant for the blood, so it, it makes the blood unrealistically watery. It's more like colored water than actually blood. This means that the blood in real life of Jesus or of the shroud man would have flowed much slower and wouldn't their experiments are not realistic to how real blood would have flowed. Now, one, one thing just to admit here, because um, Mark Antinici, the source I was using for the counter, he doesn't mention this, so I'm going to throw this in, is, is that um, Alan Adler and, and some STIRP scientists do admit that because of the torture, the severe torture of the man beforehand and all of the previous bleeding uh, prior to the crucifixion and the spear wound, it, it is possible that some of the blood's clotting factors could have been depleted by this torture. So, you know, this anticoagulant isn't totally off base, but it's just, it's the extent to which the these scientists do it. I mean, it no matter what would have happened, no matter how depleted the, shroud, the blood of the shroud man's clotting factors would have been, it would not have been as watery, you know, basically like colored water, red colored water is what these people were using in this experiment. So that's totally off base. You're not allowed to use that as a valid comparison to prove that, well, the results we got on this mannequin from these blood flows using colored water, basically, uh, is com- is not comparable to the shroud, therefore the shroud can't be real blood flows. That's a mistaken reasoning there. Um, one thing, yeah, so one thing to mention, when the crucifixion victim was suspended from a cross, some, you know, Pierre Barbet, uh, some experts say that, well, he couldn't breathe, and he would lift up in order to breathe, raising his arms on a horizontal axis, altering by about 10 degrees or so whenever he would breathe in and out. And this could account for some of the reason why the blood flows are in differing directions. Plus, I mean, this guy, when he's taken down from the cross, he's going to be in all sorts of different directions and carried to the tomb. Now, uh, one thing just to counter about the anticoagulant, bear in mind, the fact that the victim would have been dehydrated could also be said to slow down the blood flow because it would be more viscous. There would be, you know, plus the dirt or sweat, um, any swellings on the body. These would all be factors which would inhibit or slow down the blood flow, which wouldn't make the these scientific experiments realistic to how blood flows would flow on the Shroudman in real life, someone actually being crucified. Another point is the these um, Garlicelli and, and his... Uh, and the scientists in this article also mentioned that there's a gap in the shroud man's blood flow and on his forearm, left forearm. But this is obvious where this came from. It's because while the man was in rigor mortis, 
they had to grab the arm. That's a perfect location for them to grab it, wiping off the blood and lower it into, you know, covering his groin area. So this has a ready explanation. This is not problematic at all. Um, you know, this sort of so-called gap in the lower forearm of the man on the shroud. So yeah, in terms of the arm and hand, uh, arm and hand wound and the blood flow associated with that, you know, the, the author's artificial experiments are very unrealistic. They don't apply to an actual real human crucifixion victim, so they're not applicable. You're not allowed to logically use their results and say, well, this is impossible in real life. They, they don't take into account many of the features that would have been more comparable to the actual, what we see with the Shroud Man and consistent with what all the forensic experts who studied the Shroud directly in terms of stirp scientists and that sort of thing on the actual cloth. Uh, remember, I've got a list of 24. Mine are better than yours if you want to play a numbers game or, you know, who's got the most authorities. Yeah, like I said, we don't need to do that. It's based on the evidence itself and the evidence is we know that these experiments were not realistic. Therefore, they can't be used as a comparison. Now, in the second set of experiments, this is where we look at the um, the chest wound, and they use synthetic blood on a small sponge, which was soaked with it, and then they put this sponge on a stick, lay a mannequin horizontally out, or and then sort of stab him, stab the mannequin sideways, horizontally. Well, in the first place, this is a problem um, because then when they do that, they get. Th three little lines. It doesn't pool up like what we see with the Shroud Man. Therefore, they're like, well, the chest wound is totally unrealistic. We've proven it. Um, well, no, you haven't. In the first place, it's not realistic because the Roman, Jesus was up on a cross. This guy was up on a cross, presumably, and would have had an upward spear thrust into him. The, the spear wasn't thrust into him horizontally. Once again, we have the problem of anticoagulant. Um, you know, this is runny water, colored water, really not comparable to what we'd have with the Shroud Man. Also, they totally forget about the fact that there is a clear watery fluid present on the Shroud. This is the serum. It, it wasn't just blood, but it was also the serum from the pleural cavity in the chest that we have proven scientifically is present on the Shroud. This clear fluid, which is invisible to the naked eye, also on there. So uh, if Jesus was on the cross, both the blood and the watery fluid would have oozed out from the side wound by gravity. And this would have come out in one flow. There's only one hole, right? For, for So when it escapes the right man's oracle, when that's stabbed or pierced, that would have come out through the one hole. It couldn't have gone off or splayed out in those three directions. But these scientists claim is the real way a wound would go. Also, uh, stirp scientists have proven that it is possible for a blood belt, this is a scientific experiment, and they've proven it, that by pouring water, that it could curve around the back, the lower part of a man's back, all the way around, and including the results in this scientific test by these skeptics also proves it, because with their mannequin, it, in one of the experiments, it did actually curve down around the lower back, but part of the lower back was t of the mannequin was touching the thing, so it stops in the middle and pools in the middle. It doesn't go all the way around the, the lower back like a belt on the shroud man. But that wouldn't be a problem in real life with a real human being, because if you lie down flat on your back, the lower of your back is curved up. It's not touching a flat surface like your middle back is. Or So bl any blood that curves around there is going to go all the way around. It's not going to stop in the middle because it's not going to be inhibited by your lower lower back touching the surface. It you know it's curved up. It's not touching anything. 
So there's nothing to hinder the blood from going all the way around if we're talking about a real body versus this mannequin that they're using. And as to the various angles, as I said, just think about all the various positions the man in the shroud was. Uh, was in, taken down from the cross, you know, uh, you know, sort of awkwardly trying to take him down from the cross, transporting him down to the tomb, then wrapping him up and doing a, a burial washing. I mean, there, there's so many different ways that this blood belt could have could have formed or that the different angles of the of the blood flows could appear in a non in a way that's not consistent with a horizontal supine position. So yeah, it, these these experiments are just utterly meaningless. They they don't prove what they want to say um, because they use inappropriate methods and they make erroneous comparison between their blood flows on the shroud and then use that to judge the shroud. This is an error in logic. That you know they they try to say that these experimental results disavow and prove the shrouds flows are unrealistic this is just not true i, I admit it's it's a good it you know they did scientific experiments it's not something to just dismiss and ignore and that's why i'm going to be providing the sources pro and con for you guys but like i said in light of these problems i'm not i'm not troubled i'm going i'm sticking with the actual forensic experts and pathologists who say over two dozen of them over the cent over the past century 20th century and beyond who've all agreed, no, the Shroud Man is anatomically flawless. He, he is anatomically accurate by and large with all these various features. So, yeah. Um, so I think just quickly now, we're going to get into the next minimal relevant feature, and these are the additional features. And just for time's sake, because I can see, oh, goodness, we're at an hour and a half. So, um, yeah, I'm just going to more or less list these off for you guys. Uh, sorry, I know I'm, I'm doing a lot of rushing to fit in everything here, but... Okay, so the first additional feature is that the images are two-dimensional directionless. There's no brush strokes. Everyone admits this. Walter McCrony, who believed in the painting hypothesis, admits this is a fact. Um, but it was discovered in 1976 by two scientists, Don Lynn and John Laurie. These are image processing specialists at NASA. They worked at NASA. So... You know, not pseudoscientific nutters, as, as people like Alan and skeptics like to falsely claim. Um, but they used space-age technology called a microdensometer to study the photographic negative images. And they discovered that there was no, uh, very shockingly, because they, at that time they thought it was just, you know, it was comparable to a painting and stuff like that. But the color of the body images have a complete lack of two-dimensional directionality. There's no length or width dimensions to the shroud's body images. Uh, the next feature is that the non-image area of the shroud fluoresces under ultraviolet illumination, but the body images do not fluoresce. And this is going to be relevant to scorch-type hypotheses because it indicates that the shroud is formed with a low-temperature mechanism, not in a, in a non-thermal range. Um, you know, high temperature thing. There, there are scorch marks from fires that, on the shroud, and they do fluoresce red under ultraviolet, but the shroud's body images do not fluoresce red in this way. Next up, uh, various photomicrographs and samples show that the body image's color um, is a result of concentrations of yellow to light brown fibers. So that's the color of the body images. Most believe this is because it's degraded or oxidized cellulose, such as through radiation or scorch hypothesis, but we're not going to assume that. It could be a result of some sort of staining for this color as well. 
what this feature is is that we can conclusively prove that both the body images and the blood stains are not composed of any paints, pigments, or binding mediums uh, of any historically documented artistic substances up to and including the medieval period. More detail on that because there's a heck of a lot involved in that, so I'll be proving that in a later podcast. Next up, there's no evidence of layering. The body images and the and the bloodstains, they don't over there's no overlapping color. Like if you draw a line on the thing and then you draw over top of that line. Um, as I said, also the the body images terminate precisely at the blood stain and serum retraction rings. There's no overlap or damage to those blood stains or serum invisible serum retraction rings. It, Somehow, miraculously, this artist that skeptics like to claim created it terminated his images precisely at the boundary of an invisible image of serum retraction ring, what look like serum retraction rings or halos around these bloodstains. Also, there are no observed microscopic, chemical, or spectroscopic evidence for the presence of dry powder at all. This includes even in the crevices of the threads. Big problem for some shroud skeptical theories coming up. Next up, the sixth additional feature is microchemical evaluation has indicated no evidence of any spices, oils, nor any other biochemical or organic substances which are known to be either produced by a, a dead body or associated with um, you know a human body in life or death. You know, so that there's no alloys or myrrh or embalming oils and fluids that are that are have been proven on the interior, on the, on the cloth, you know, so that's sort of related to that there's no signs of decomposition. That, that fact, those facts all go hand in hand. Uh, now, just before getting to our last additional feature, there is a counter feature to mention here that's going to be relevant for one specific theory coming up. It's one of the better ones, but it, Sterp chemist and scientist Ray Rogers has a Maillard rea- his Maillard reaction theory, and this involves sugar or starch. What's uh, been found is microchemical tests with iodine and pyrolysis or mass spectro- spectrometry have detected the presence of various starch impurities on the surface of linen fibers from the terrain shroud. So, you know, starch is a critical component of Rogers' theory, so this will be something that will support or could be used to support what you know his naturalistic theory that any uh, pro shroud guy needs to account for. Also, finally, the final additional feature, the seventh one, is that there are no detectable traces of photos or light sensitive substances uh, related to silver salts or silver nitrate or, or various light sensitive emulsions. And there's no chemical or spectroscopic evidence of any of the silver species found on the shroud in relation to the shroud images. So. That's going to be an important one for uh, certain artistic theories coming up as well. Um, okay, so uh, thank gosh, uh, I think thank goodness this is will be it for today, uh, part five. I know this has been a rather long episode, but um, yeah, in closing for next time, just be aware we're going to uh, do f- part of the first part of the part six podcast on just doing a listener feedback thing. David asked me to do this for you guys and said you guys might appreciate it and i'm also going to devote some time to progressing our argument just by providing a brief introduction to criterion b you know what my methodology is uh so that for part seven uh, i can go straight into it and tackle our first image forming mechanism the painting hypothesis as advanced by walter mccrony uh so that's the the plan for next time uh thank you for listening and have a great day
Bye-bye. And uh, just before you guys go, uh, so I, after listening to this when I was editing it, there was one quick thing I wanted to clarify. With regards to the two-dimensional directionality, I can picture people getting confused with what I meant by that. Um, obviously, the shroud images have two dimensions. You can see them, right? But um, so let's just put it this way. There are no detectable brush, brush strokes. Like using a paintbrush, you can detect directionality on, you know, on length and width directionality of the paint if you're doing it diagonally, horizontally, or up and down when you're, when you're using a paintbrush to paint something. Uh, so that's what I meant by the two-directionality thing. Okay, guys, this time have a good time. Have a good day. Bye-bye.